Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. Our team worked hard to put this sermon together with you in mind, and we hope it helps you take your next step with Jesus. Enjoy. What does love require? And throughout this series, we are building toward the answer to this very question. And I hope that if you're joining us for the first time, or maybe even if you missed last weekend, that you'll go back and watch Pastor Steve's sermon from last week, because it's so important that you follow all six weeks of this series. So, so make sure you're here for the next four weeks. I can't encourage you enough to join us throughout the duration of this series. Um, our goal, our, our why for this series is to reinforce that Jesus is the foundation of our faith and to help you grow in that faith. Or depending on where you're at in your, in your faith journey or your journey with Jesus, maybe to come back to a faith in Jesus or, or even begin a faith in Christ. And in order to do so, we feel it is necessary to take a very close look at the old covenant that God made with the Hebrew people through the lens of the new covenant of Jesus. What you will hear us talk about throughout this series is our love and passion for the Old Testament scriptures. You'll hear us speak to the necessity of the Old Testament and how it helps us understand the New Testament and what it looks like to live under a Christ-centered mindset. What you will not hear us say through this series is that the Old Testament doesn't matter or isn't important. That's not true. We actually hope that throughout this series, you will develop a deeper appreciation of the beauty and significance of the Old Testament even more than you already do. To give you a quick synopsis of what Pastor Steve walked us through last weekend, uh, he took us on a 38-minute and 45-second journey. Yes, we timed him because we know some of you are clock watchers because you got plans and stuff. Uh, actually, I was talking to my son about that earlier this week, and I told him I was preaching, and he said, Dad, how long do you plan on talking for? And I said, probably about 30, 35 minutes. And he said, what? Why would you talk for so long? And my son is seven years old. And he said, after that, he said, unprompted, like unsolicited, he said, Dad, I prefer that you talk for five minutes. <laughs> so my son, who's seven, already knows his preference that it's about half a TED Talk. I'm sorry, son, but I'm going a little bit longer than that today. But last weekend, Pastor Steve took us on, on a journey throughout the 39 books, through the 39 books that make up the Old Testament. And in our sprint through those 39 books, we learned about God's covenants with the nation of Israel. And there were more, more than one. Uh, God had a covenant with Adam and Eve, a covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses, and, and a covenant with David. But to kick off our time together today, I'd like to focus our attention to God's covenant with Moses. And this wasn't just a covenant with Moses, but with all of the Israelite people. 
You may have heard this referred to as Mosaic Law or the Law of Moses or even the 613 mitzvahs or commandments because that's how many rules they had to follow, 613. It was first given to Moses, the, the leader of the Israelites on Mount Sinai, after he had led the people out of slavery, or in other words, uh, led the exodus from Egypt, and were introduced to this covenant in Exodus chapter 19. If you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 3. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, Genesis, then Exodus. So it's right in the beginning, Exodus 19, starting in verse 3. Here's, here's what we read. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then... Out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Okay, we're going to stop right there because we have to take note of, of, of what this covenant is. And that is that this is a conditional covenant. What does God say in verse 5? He says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. If you do this, then I will do that. It's a conditional covenant. Now, something else that's super important for us to, to recognize is that when God says you, he's talking to the nation of Israel. He says you, Jewish people, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. We cannot miss that this was God's covenant with the Jewish people. Starting in this moment on Mount Sinai and extending until Jesus would arrive on the scene. This is not God's covenant with us. This was God's covenant with them. And they, the Israelites, after they got this conditional covenant from God, they said in, in verse 8, the people all responded together, we will do. Everything the Lord has said. That sounds great. We'll obey all of the commands, all 613 rules. Not a problem. We got this. Except they didn't. The major issue that, that continuously comes up throughout the Old Testament was that the Hebrew people were not that great at fulfilling their end of the agreement. They did not meet the requirement to fully obey God. And I understand that. They had 613 rules. Growing up, my parents gave our family a family covenant that consisted of seven rules. And I couldn't even keep all of those. Seven rules, and I couldn't do it. Like one of the rules, I think Article 3 of our family covenant, this is how intense it was. It was like posted on our refrigerator, was to not touch other people's things without permission. Well, my sister had a lot of really good candy in her room, and so... And in my defense, it's more her fault than my fault because she couldn't hide it very well. So I, like, I went and stole it. Um, but in a, in a very roundabout way, my sister got her payback because I don't have that great of a metabolism. So, so it worked out better for her, I think. Uh, but like me, the Jewish people didn't follow the rules. 
And because they couldn't keep up with it, the covenant really revealed to the people. It made it crystal clear that they were sinners in need of a savior. The law they were given in the desert, this is so important. The law that they were given was already pointing them to Jesus. I mean, even the sacrificial laws found in this covenant were more of a, of a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that was to come in Jesus. And just so we're clear, the law wasn't bad and there weren't any problems with it. I mean, it came from God, so the law was perfect. But for as perfect as the law was, it was also impossible for the Jewish people to live by the law perfectly because they were sinners. They were human beings. Furthermore, the law had no power to give the people new life. And so this is why they and we need Jesus. They had a need and we have a need for a perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the people. This is the reason we often hear the law being referred to by another name, and that is the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant that Jesus came to replace with something new, namely the New Covenant of Jesus. You see, the Old Covenant is vital and necessary to our Christian faith because it helps us understand and fully grasp the new. Okay, so what does all this have to do with what love requires of us? Well, I'm glad you asked, but we're not going to get to it for another couple weeks. So I hope you'll stick with us. Because we first must understand and, and ask the question and attempt to answer the question, well, what did love require of God? And whether you're new to church or you've been coming to church for a while, most of us can respond to that question. What did love require of God? By simply reciting the most popular verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that it required that he give his one and only son. And that's what he did. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The reason why this verse is so popular is because it is foundational to the Christian faith. It's so important. But the part that we can't miss from this one verse comes just a few words in. We read, John writes, For God so loved the world. See, we don't read, For God so loved the nation of Israel. No, we, leave, we, we, we read, For God so loved the world, for God so loved them and us and everyone that is to come, every person, throughout every generation, in every single nation. The old covenant was just between God and the Jewish people, but the new covenant means something way more significant to you and to me because it includes us. The old covenant was for them. The new covenant is for all of us. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I think new things are always so exciting. Like a new job, a new vehicle, a new friend, or, or maybe because it's the new year, you have a new goal or a new resolution. New things are incredible. I remember when my wife bought me a new 
to me, it was pretty old at the time, it's 1978 Honda CB750. She bought me a new-to-me motorcycle for my 30th birthday. After, we'd been married for eight years, and she's like, you are never going to own a motorcycle because you're going to injure yourself badly. So she bought me this, this bike for my 30th birthday. Uh, coincidentally enough, it was also right around the time I got a new life insurance policy, and I'm <laughs> sure there's no correlation there. But, but that, maybe after eight years, she's like, yeah, it's fine. We're fine. Uh, but that gift, that gift that she got me meant a lot to me. I love it. And a lot of the thrill came because it was something new. New things are awesome. And new is exactly what Jesus came to bring. Unfortunately, no one really expected Jesus to bring something new. Uh, the people thought that, that if he was the Messiah, then, then his whole job was to further develop what they had always known. If he was a prophet, then he was there to shepherd the nation of Israel and only the nation of Israel back to their old ways, back to the old covenant that the Jewish people had such a difficult time meeting the requirements of. If he was a rabbi or a teacher, then Jesus would come to bring clarity to the prophecies and, and the old texts and help people understand, how do I follow the rules better? But instead, Jesus came to bring something new. And thank God he did. Because the new wasn't just for them like the old covenant was. The new is for all of us. For God so loved the world. I mean, even Jesus' own disciples did not expect him to do or even be something new. They were constantly correlating him with the old. Like the time in Matthew 16 when Jesus was hanging out with his whole crew in Caesarea Philippi, and he asked them, like, hey, who do you guys, or who do people say that I am? And the disciples responded, they're like, Jesus, it's actually pretty widespread. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about you. Some think you're the reincarnated John the Baptist. Uh, others think you're, you're Jeremiah or, or, or Isaiah or one of the other old Jewish prophets come back to life. They essentially said, people think you're one of the old guys that's been raised from the dead. And then Jesus said, okay, that, that's fine. Who do you say I am? And that's when Peter spoke up. And he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, yes, you got it, Peter. But then he followed that up, that affirmation of what Peter said, and he followed it up with something pretty crazy and a bit controversial. He said, verse, verse 18 of Matthew 16, On this rock I will build my church. This right here is the first time in our English New Testament that the word church shows up. And it is translated from the Greek word ecclesia. But church, something, something that's important for us to recognize is that church is more of an interpretation of what Jesus was saying and isn't really the best word to use as a translation for ecclesia. Because ecclesia really means assembly. It doesn't mean church how we think of it today. It doesn't mean house of the Lord. And it for sure should not be associated with temple. Because an ecclesia, in the truest sense of the word, means gathering of people or assembly for any specific purpose. So don't miss what Jesus is saying here. 
He says, I will build my church. I will build my gathering, my assembly. And this sentence would have been so controversial because Jesus is positioning himself and what he will build against the temple and all that it meant to the Jewish people. And we learned a lot about that last week. Pastor Steve covered so much of how significant the temple was to the nation of Israel. His disciples, when, he, when they heard this, had to have been freaking out a bit because, because in this moment, Jesus is setting himself against the very institution that they value more than anything else. He says, that's old. This, my gathering, my assembly, my church, my ecclesia, this is new. And quick side note, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you're watching online or you're in one of our buildings across the, the East Bay, you are part of the new that Jesus built thousands of years ago because you are part of his gathering. You are part of his ecclesia, and I just think that's a beautiful thing. But as, as controversial as this statement about the new ecclesia was, it wasn't even the most controversial or offensive thing Jesus ever said when it comes to old and new. Uh, in another conversation with his disciples, Jesus said something so provocative that it would be comparable to Pastor Steve standing up on this platform on the first weekend of December and said, hey church, we've got a new direction that we're going for Christmas this year. Instead of celebrating the birth of Jesus, we're going to celebrate my birthday instead. So, so it's like Steve getting up here and say, so, so you know what? No more Merry Christmas. We're going Merry Steve-mas this year. I hope you guys will celebrate me with me. Like that, that's, if, if Steve said that, you would be like, okay, that guy has lost his mind. Like you'd shut your, your browser down. You'd probably leave the church, which I don't blame you. Like that would be crazy. Well, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus said something just as offensive as Pastor Steve saying something to that effect. And he did this while he met with his 12 disciples to celebrate the Passover meal. And just so we have a little bit of an understanding of what, what Passover is, um, it is one of the most, if not the most, important celebrations for the Jewish people. It's when they remember their liberation from Egypt. But something else to be aware of is that at this point in history, while Jesus is meeting with his disciples, they're also under Roman rule. So on this specific night, not only were they celebrating, but they were remembering what God was capable of. Like, hey, if he did it then, he can do it again. Maybe that's who Jesus is going to turn out to be. Maybe, probably, hopefully, he's going to deliver us like God did before. But Jesus took the conversation in a completely different direction that night. Turn over to, to Luke chapter 22. Luke is the third book of the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, then Luke. If you get to John and Acts, you've gone too far. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 22. We're going to start in verse 14. All right, here's what we read. When the hour came, Luke writes, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table so, so just kind of picture this. They're all getting ready to eat together. They're reclining. They're leaning in toward their rabbi, and they're, they're having a conversation. That's when Jesus speaks up, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Uh-oh. Jesus just said, and he's going to suffer. And the disciples knew that if Jesus knew that suffering was ahead for him, then suffering was ahead for them as well. 
So they would have started to get uneasy a little bit. And I don't even know if they would have been able to focus enough to, to really understand what Jesus was about to say after this because suffering was looming. Jesus continues, For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, for as uneasy as they were feeling about the whole suffering thing, they would have started to squirm a little bit in their chairs as they heard Jesus say this. Because it's like, wait, hold on, Jesus, it sounds like you want us to celebrate Passover because of you. Like, it sounds like you're making Passover meal and Passover in general about you. Is that what you're doing right now? Verse 19, and he took bread, gave, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of your liberation from Egypt like you've always done. Nope. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of what God could do. Nope. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus says, yep, it's all about me. And the disciples would have been like, oh, okay, hold on. You want us to celebrate Passover in remembrance of you? I mean, this is absurd. Jesus had no right to do this. Unless, unless the reason Jesus came was to bring something bigger than Israel's deliverance from Egypt or even their deliverance from Rome. Maybe what was about to go down was way greater than all that. But what could be more significant? And so they're left to think about this and process this. You know, they got the suffering thing. They got Jesus saying the crazy stuff about Passover and remembrance of him. And the, but but the, the time came to eat dinner, so they just started eating dinner. And, and I wonder if they're like, all right, well, well, some time has passed. Maybe I didn't hear Jesus right. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just confused. I don't know. But then verse 20, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Okay, so as soon as they heard Jesus say new covenant, their minds would have gone back to Jeremiah chapter 31, where Jeremiah prophesies about the new covenant that is to come. And this is huge. The disciples would have been well aware of this prophecy. And they had to have been so confused, but then craziness would ensue. They'd be running for their lives the very next day and wouldn't have had enough time to process all the ramifications of Jesus saying that the new covenant is found in his blood. That it comes through him. But here's what we know now and what they would figure out eventually. The new covenant, Jesus, was the fulfillment of God's old covenant. Remember, the Jewish people couldn't accomplish all of what the old covenant required. But this new covenant poured out in the blood of Christ is what love required. A requirement that only God himself could live up to. And not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. No one had to live under the impossible to fulfill old covenant any longer. They didn't and we don't because Jesus met those requirements and with him came a new covenant. 
I hope we can all grasp the far-reaching implications of this for the disciples sitting around the table that evening. And not just for them, but, but for all the Jewish people. And not just for them, but for us today as well. When Jesus fulfilled the old covenant and ushered in the new covenant, this matters not just for them, but for every person throughout every generation in every single nation. It's the very reason why today we don't follow all of the laws that were given to the Israelites through God's covenant. It's why, it's why we get to have bacon with our eggs, praise the Lord. It's, it's why we don't have to sacrifice lambs to stay in speaking terms with God. That's what it was like for them before Jesus. But because of Jesus, we get to enjoy God's presence and have open conversation with him. We get to experience his love firsthand. That's for all of us. And, and that's, it's just so beautiful to, to process that and think through that and just, just, just understand what's afforded to us because of the sacrifice made through Christ. But in light of all this, there's something that still occasionally pops up, some tension that we have to wrestle with today. And it's an issue that the church has struggled with for centuries. And that's this. Even though Jesus fulfilled the old covenant, Followers of Jesus tend to pick and choose parts of God's covenant with Israel and incorporate them into the new covenant that Jesus came to bring. For example, shortly after Christianity was legalized in the 4th century, Christians began to persecute and execute people who worshipped idols and didn't turn from their ways. Christians, Christ followers, began to persecute and execute others. Now, that doesn't sound very Christ-like, does it? So why did they feel they had the right to do this? Well, the old covenant said so in Deuteronomy 13. In the 11th century, church leaders weaponized Christianity by giving a guarantee to avoid hell if a person joined the Crusades. They leveraged an old covenant text to condone violence in God's name by promising a new covenant view of heaven. In the 14th century, the taking from the old and incorporating in the new got so out of hand and so far away from the message of the new covenant Jesus brought that there was an internal plea for reform. The reformers saw all, all the bad things that were happening, how disruptive and, 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 and how distorted this, this was, that just the wrong views of Jesus began to creep in, views that minimized who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Now, everything, I mean, it, it, there's a lot that would happen here, but, but everything from, from priests teaching that they were the only way to access God because they acted as the connection between God and the church, giving them extreme power and authority. Furthermore, they taught that salvation came through good works and penance for the bad things, and also somehow the merits of saints that had gone before them. And when the church leaders, when this was brought to their attention, when it was brought to their attention how misaligned they were with the new covenant of Jesus, when they didn't listen to that, the reformers stepped away from the church, thus forming the Protestant church. And the Protestant movement is best summarized at its foundation by the five solas. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Soli Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Sola Scriptura, 
was a reference to the church leaders who taught that their authority came from a combination of scripture, tradition, and the word of the Pope. And the reformer said, no, scripture alone. In response to salvation coming through good works and penance for mistakes and, and, and somehow the merits of the saints and, and so on, the reformers responded, no, no, no. Salvation comes through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. As Protestants today, we have been blessed tremendously because the reformers have passed down an appreciation of the word of God and an understanding of salvation that is consistent with the new covenant of Jesus. Thank God for those brave, brave individuals. But just because we follow that correction from hundreds of years ago, I don't think it necessarily means that we don't stumble into this in 2020. But, but before we get there, I, just, I, think, I think it's important that I unpack something for us real quick. Um, and that's that right now there is a growing number of people in 2020 who have left the Christian faith and never plan on coming back. And this breaks my heart. And if you've been around church for a while, you've probably seen this, or maybe you've seen your kids walk away from the faith, or maybe you've heard your, your neighbor declare that they want nothing to do with your Savior, even though your Savior is also his or her Savior. They just are keeping you at an arm's length. If you've experienced any of that, then I think this should break your heart too. Check this out. There are more nuns, not N-U-N-S, nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns, more nuns, people who are part of no religion, no religion and have no religious affiliation, there are more nuns than there are Protestants in the United States today. Over the past 50 years, nuns are up from 10% to 23.1% of people in America. Protestants are right around the 18% mark. Many of the people in this group at one point in their life were part of the Christian faith that many of us would say we're a part of. But one of the reasons they stepped away is because of what Pastor Steve talked about last weekend. They struggle with, with the Old Testament miracle stories and, and question their validity. Um, even though no one ever told them that they needed to attach their belief in Jesus to a six-day creation, um, Noah's flood or Jonah's fish. But to take this even further, the main reason that nuns give for why they chose to leave the Christian faith and no longer have any religious affiliation and don't plan on ever having a religious affiliation is because they see what they view as hypocrisy and unnecessary judgment from Protestant Christians today. But what makes them think this? Well, I believe that part of the issue could be because the church, we have a tendency still to reach back into the old covenant, the, the beautiful and necessary and incredible words that we love so much because they, they help us understand who Jesus is. But we reach back into the old covenant laws and use those laws that were meant for the Jewish people to live under, and it causes us to practice an old covenant mindset in a new covenant faith. This is why it's so important for us to understand these covenants in the proper context and in the proper way. This is why we're walking through this series together because this doesn't just matter for us. It matters for people who have left us. Because if we look past the fact that God made the covenant, that covenant, the old covenant with the Jewish people, and we still use an old covenant mindset to support how we act or how we judge others or what we promote or what policies we form, then the mass exodus from the from the Christian church will continue to happen. 
Now, let me give us a couple examples of, of situations that we still reach back into the, the laws intended for the Jewish people and bring them into the new covenant of Jesus because maybe, maybe this happens more often than we think. For example, some of you are in church this weekend because you think that if you show up at church like you're supposed to, then God will look favorably upon you and your San Francisco 49ers and they'll win the NFC championship this weekend. <laughs> like if I follow God's rules, he'll do something good for me. If then, it's conditional. That's old covenant thinking. And it's a waste of time anyway. I mean, the Niners are going to beat the Packers, but they're going to lose in two weeks. So that's, that's just prophecy. Um, someone said amen to that and they're clapping. I got booed last service, so that's cool. Um, but for real, we, don't, we, we obviously don't, like more, in a more serious manner, we, we obviously don't take everything that we read in the old covenant and set that as our mindset today. Like we don't get the whole town together and stone our kids when they rebel like we read in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Here's what we read there. If, as part of the Old Covenant, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders a super loving sentence, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. But it doesn't end there. Then all of the, all the men of the, of the town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. If we were still living under old covenant law, I wouldn't be here today. And I'm sure, I'm sure I'm the only one because you were all perfect children. But I'm so glad my parents recognized that they weren't under that law. But I don't think that this has been completely reconciled. Because back in my student ministry days, I do remember a former student of mine whose parents kicked her out of the house when they found out that she was pregnant as a teenager. And they cited Deuteronomy 21 as the inspiration for their decision. They were purging the evil from their house. And she hasn't been back to church since. Or how about this? Why would a follower of Jesus today ever declare any natural disaster God's judgment just because it happens to people who aren't Christians? Or, or why would we expect non-Christians to behave like Christians and then judge and con condemn, condemn them when they don't? And the answers to these questions are inspired by an old covenant mindset that we no longer live under. And people have justified war and judgment and the reason for bad things happening to innocent people with answers that they've taken directly from the Bible. Just quoting verses from the scripture. And it's in the reading of those verses without an understanding through the lens of who and what they were for that gets us into trouble and makes people go, I don't want what you're selling. Because you'd be hard-pressed to find justification for any of that in the new covenant of Jesus. The new covenant, and we cannot miss this. The new covenant that is not conditional on what we do, but on what Jesus did on our behalf. And let me make this a little more personal even. 
I know that I've fallen into an old covenant mindset plenty of times. Because when things are conditional, when all I have to worry about is whether I'm being good enough or not, then the only person I have to worry about is me. Because when it's just about following enough of the right rules or meeting the right requirements, I have a very clear picture of how much I can get away with and where I stand. And I also know where you stand, so I can judge where you're at in your relationship with Jesus. But if the Jewish people, time and time again, could not follow all the right rules, am I arrogant enough to think that I'm better than they were? I know I'm not good enough. I know I'm not perfect. I know I screw up all the time. I know I fall short. Just like the Jewish people did under the Mosaic law. So without a doubt, there was a need for Jesus then, and there is a need for Jesus now, and I can testify firsthand that that is true for my life. So it would help me, and it would help us to stop bringing an old covenant mindset and mixing it with a new covenant mentality of Jesus Christ. Because I've realized that as long as I put some of the old that Jesus fulfilled ahead of the things that he actually did and said, I will never fully grasp the new that he brought. And I think that's true for all of us. I'll, I'll close with this because I've gone way past the five minutes that my son gave me. <laughs> but maybe for you, in light of this, it begs the question, okay, then how do I read the Old Covenant? Well, first of all, make sure you read it. Make sure you study it. It's incredible and beautiful and so important. I mean, we cannot fully understand the New Covenant without it. But secondly, we have to understand that we don't live under it. So read the Mosaic Law. Read the Old Covenant. Read the, the entire Old Testament through the lens of who it was for and why it was written. And do not forget that Jesus has been there the whole time. He was with God in the beginning. He's present through all the covenants. He's present through all of Jewish history. And he's for sure present when the prophecies speak of his arrival on earth. And then he became physically present, bringing his new covenant. So read those beautiful words in light of the bigger story, the, the, the narrative that God is, is communicating and weaving together for all of us. We cannot minimize that our Jesus, our Messiah, came to save the world. Not just the Jewish people, but you and the person sitting next to you and your coworker and your neighbor and your kids. Through a new covenant with a new requirement. A new requir requirement that we'll get into in the coming weeks. You know, one of the things that I've, I've had to wrestle with in preaching this message is that usually I want to give you like two or three things to do based on what we're studying, but I don't have that this week. It's actually been a little frustrating for me as I've, as I've written and prepared because I don't have a to-do list for you other than to think about this, pray about this, process this, and then come back next week. Because if your heart breaks over the brokenness in the world, if you're a parent and you want your kids to know the hope that you know, if you are pained by the current cultural landscape and how so many can so easily dismiss the savior of the entire world, every person throughout every generation in every single nation, the savior who loves me and loves you and loves them more than any of us could ever imagine, then don't miss next weekend. We're just getting started. Let's pray. Father God, I, 
I, I love you and I love your church. God, it's so incredible that we get to be a part of your gathering, something you set up thousands of years ago and is still alive and well today. God, let us be the church you desire us to be. Let us be the assembly of people that you want, that we would be a beacon of hope and light in a world that desperately needs it, God. Father, I'm also grateful to be part of a, a gathering where we can process and, and understand and, and develop um, even more so our, our, our belief and understanding of you. God, that you clarify and, and work through things that maybe certain things we've held on to for a while. But God, I ask that as we do process through this series, God, that you give us wisdom, you give us clarity, you give us peace, you give us compassion, you give us grace, you give us truth. Because God, our hope is that as a church, we would be surrendered to you to let the love and hope that we've experienced in our own lives shine through us. That there wouldn't be a mass exodus from the most beautiful life and faith that, that there is but that, God, people would be so attracted to you because we live your new covenant in a powerful and dedicated way. God, you are an incredible God. Thank you for being you. Lead us and guide us, and we pray all of this in the matchless, powerful, incredible, beautiful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.